the dead lovers of the kudzu house of horrors. They are right here, right beside me, the dead husband and wife. We are all three displayed in a gothic Golgotha of bones and kudzu. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with writer, Kentucky Colonel, visual artist, and musician J.D. Wilkes. And we will explore Southern legend and folklore. The Bible, especially uh, King James Bible, is woven in with our folklore down here and becomes its own sort of haunting thing, you know, like Flannery O'Connor described it as a, a Christ haunting. And all of that gets mixed in with the actual hauntings of the houses and the woods and things. Uh, at least that was the, the vibe I got growing up. From the Appalachian foothills to the deadening, J.D. Wilkes, Southern folklore, and the vine that ate the South. On Arts and Letters. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with writer, Kentucky Colonel, visual artist, and musician, J.D. Wilkes. This will be both my first and last childhood adventure, albeit one conducted in my 30s. Wilkes' novel, The Vine That Ate the South, published by $2 Radio, is a collage of sometimes surreal moments from a mythic American Kentucky childhood. Kudzu, a.k.a. Peraria Montana Lobata is of Chinese descent. Deceptively, it begins as just a tiny thing. Its little runners spread via vegetative reproduction, producing shoots that root along its host. The seeds it sheds in autumn lie dormant for years, long after the pest has been thought destroyed. Interestingly enough, kudzu is edible. Folks down here have been known to cook it into a salad or a salad, boil it like collard greens, and douse it with Tabasco to help it go down. But let's be honest, kudzu is more likely to eat you. So are we that much superior to kudzu, a plant with infinite extremities? A plant that triumphs over tall columned verandas and mighty castle spires, over entire empires? Roderick Farrell and that Windorf girl met down upon a dark and gray. Yet once again, it stirs deep below our boots in the loam and gloam of the Shadowlands. Then up it slips, piercing the topsoil into daylight. climbs to the treetops to unfurl its shroud of dragon scales 
and kills the trees with shade. All ye motherless children so lost Dwell not in the caves of your mind Roderick Farrell's trail of sin It led him to his end But bloody fields blossom blue in time Bloody fields blossom blue in time From the Appalachian foothills to the deadening J.D. Wilkes, Southern Folklore and the Vine that ate the South on Arts and Letters. J.D. Wilkes, musician, Kentucky artist, purveyor of traditional culture. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Tell us, for those who aren't from the South, the mythos of kudzu. Because in here, there's a whole description of kudzu. You go scientifically into its origins. You show pictures. It's great. Well, it's sort of used as a device. And the reason why I go scientific is like when you read Moby Dick, the whole middle section of that book is sort of an encyclopedia of data on whales. It wasn't just used poetically. I wanted people to know what this thing is. It is an invasive species of an ivy that uh, was brought over, but it takes over everything and kills whatever it grows on. And sometimes you'll see it growing on telephone poles by the railroad and and just making this kind of bristly mess all over everything and forming this ghostly topiary of shapes out of the trees. And it just, to me, it's like Moby Dick. It's the enemy. It is the beast. Deceptively, it begins as just a tiny thing. Its little runners spread via vegetative reproduction, producing shoots that root along its host. There's a phrase I learned later. At first it sleeps, then it creeps, and then it leaps. So um, tell us a little bit about the inspiration for this book. I mean, you have pictures that you've drawn in it. There's folklore throughout, and Kentucky folklore And, of course, there's the infamous kudzu. What was the inspiration for this? Well, um, I'm a musician, and uh, we were actually over in Norway on tour with the Dirt Daubers, which was my band at the time. And uh, I'd been away from home for, like, months. You know, we're in Europe doing it all, you know, and that's what we do. And I'm starting to get homesick. And I had this idea in my back of my head, and I started tossing it around. But I didn't really uh, start riding it until the tour van plunged into these the Norwegian mountains and, the, and went into these long tunnels where you were in there for like 30 minutes of darkness in this, this tunnel through the mountains, like some Lord of the Rings thing, like Moria. <laughs> and it didn't really start riding on it until I uh, just wanted some light in my face. So I cracked my laptop open for a source of light just to get some light in my face because I was developing a claustrophobia and, uh, and on top of the, uh, the homesickness. And while I had it open, I said, well, I might as well just go ahead because I'm, I'm about to go crazy over here. So I started waxing poetic on that little kernel of, of an idea that I had had, you know, uh, been knocking around in my brain for a while. And uh, about this this railroad track that runs by my house in real life. The Old Spur Line is the name of the abandoned railroad bed that cuts a path directly toward this mortal coil of legend. (laughs) 
go to the Littleville Bottle Works and cut to the left. There's an empty schoolhouse where kids break in and steal old flags and maps. Head around back. Here, the old spur line begins its way into Marshall County, crooked as a dog's hind leg. This is the trail that leads to our dark prize, the Kudzu House of Horrors. And uh, in this one, there's Hero, right? And he's kind of unnamed. Yeah, he gets a name. He gets a nickname in this book. And then uh, in the the, uh, sequel that I'm writing now, that nickname really becomes his name. And then he may or may not find out his real name. So like uh, what started off as sort of an oversight or it didn't matter to me to name my protagonist ended up being a plot point later for the sequel. But yeah, it's just basically the narrator. I've heard by both old and young fogies alike a story that goes like this. A reclusive elderly couple died within a few days of one another inside their woodland home. Perhaps they were so in love or so codependent, they just couldn't live apart. In the resulting abandon, a little kudzu weed sprouted up through the floorboards. It was nothing more than a sapling, a sprig, popping up beneath their bed. But it soon flourished into a monster that filled all four corners of the house. It gobbled up every stick of furniture, every appliance, even the kitchen sink. It got into the chimney, it got into the vents. It even ran down into the plumbing, but that wasn't enough. The vine soon turned its head toward the deceased. Go dig a hole in the bed, good people. Go dig a hole in the ground. And go dig a hole in the meadow. And the legs all round her down, down. Up to the... First, it sent but a single strand to weave up their ankles, just for a quick nibble. It spread out wide, climbed the ceiling, and curled its tendrils in like the clefts of a lyre. Then, with lush abandon, the thing descended to devour them both, stem to stern. Days passed into weeks, then months, The rate of its growth doubled, then tripled. It pulled itself evermore through the floorboards like a giant thread unraveling from the very fabric of nature. At last, it burst through the walls and overtook the entire Kentucky cliff top, plus anything else in sight. And in the same way an acorn can fall to earth and spring to a mighty life of its own, In the same way roots exhume coffins they so rudely invade, this humble weed 
defied expectation. It gathered the lovers up, pulled them through the window, and crocheted them into the wilderness. Yes, for decades, these souls have just hung there, caught in a gauzy blur between heaven and earth. It is said that the husband, in particular, suspends, crowned with the graying laurels of past winters. But as well known as the old dead couple is down here, the truth is that few have actually laid eyes on them. But as for me, myself, and I, we aim to find them. This will be both my first and last childhood adventure, albeit one conducted in my 30s. So it's a kind of a classic story to go on a journey. That's and right. they take a, a journey to try to find out if this legend is true, this legend of these two old people who were caught up by kudzu, and they flew up into the trees, and there's yeah. these skeletons that are yeah. basically in the trees, and the kudzu has grown out of them. It's, I, I, I don't know where that legend came from, other than maybe a dream state. I hope I didn't rip it off of something, <laughs> but it might be a real legend, which is fine if it is, uh, because that's what this book is all about. It's a compendium of folk tales from Kentucky in the South of, you know, that I might have picked up along the way, uh, novelized into this Tolkien-esque saga or epic, these two guys. And I, I think because I was in Norway, in those mountains like that, it might have rubbed off on the way I, the way I started framing the plot, you know, in that kind of journey, hero's journey way. But the thing is, is what I wanted to show is that, you know, Tolkien was doing uh, Anglo-Saxon folklore, but I wanted to show how we have a, our own folklore down here. If you pay attention to what your granny used to tell you, don't go into those woods or don't go into that barn or something about, you know, the Mothman. Or we have a whole bestiary of our own creatures and, and folk tales and superstitions that are rich. Uh, a lot of them do go back to old England or, or uh, Native American or even African. All of it is good enough for me because it's a, it's a nice cross-cultural sampling of, of Southern folklore. You're listening to Arts and Letters and our conversation with writer, illustrator, musician J.D. Wilkes about his book, The Vine That Ate the South. We'll be back in a moment. Let's return to our conversation with writer and musician J.D. Wilkes and his novel, The Vine That Ate the South. I typically stayed out of the sun, alone in the woods or indoors reading books. I loved anything having to do with Greek mythology, the classics, or the Bible. Alas, I am now the kind of guy who says alas. Alas, you ask, what kind of guy? In this case, your character, the hero, says alas. How much of this do you see in yourself? You know, it's a caricature of myself. It's the things that I don't like about myself writ large. So uh, I didn't spend all the time indoors. I wouldn't be able to write about nature like this if I didn't go out and look at it or like I haven't spent hours and hours, you know, outdoors playing. And now he sits in his cabin door, bopping his tear-dimmed eye, just looking up on his only dear son up on the sky, holding high. 
Understand much of my actual youth was spent in a state of arrested development inside a fatherless home. Ghostly memories of my father come and go in the same way. Dark, disturbing dreams of trouble moving between the wrinkles of my brain. I have my doubts about the events that led to my father's demise. So what happened to Hero's father? Well, he got into some uh, weird cult activity and made friends with the wrong people. And there was some sort of uh, cloak and dagger stuff that kind of uh, got out of hand. Basically delving into devilish things and uh, the devil catching up with them. So there's two major characters, Hero and then Carver. Let's go for it. Can yeah. you tell us about Carver? On one hand, he's kind of a, I don't know, stereotypical Southern yeah, guy, jerk. jerk. <laughs> but on the other hand, he's very clever. Well, see, that's the thing. It's that uh, he is a um, dichotomy, a uh, conundrum. He's a Native American Cherokee redneck, like a hillbilly. Well, he's got this sort of mix to him that... You can't quite put your finger on, but he knows everything about these woods, and he's kind of the Gollum in a way, and in the same way, you didn't know if you could trust Gollum or not. But uh, yeah, he's he's a um, a conundrum, but that is the South for you. But he moves the story. He carves. He carves the story. That's the right. They're setting out on their bicycles to find the House of Kudzu, to find these two older people. Are they interested in finding the legend, or are they just interested in what this is going to look like? Yeah, it wasn't Sir Edmund Hillary. It was, I found out <laughs> later, it was someone else that said it, he climbed it because it was there. <laughs> That's basically, it's there. It's Carver, supposed to be there. It's supposed to be there. I think Carver said he saw it, but you never know if he's lying or not. <laughs> so they just went to go see it because it's there, maybe. A Kong-sized monkey fist clinching real human skeletons. Spray painting pentagrams on LSD. Puppy mills and meth labs and cockfight clubs abound. Oh, get me out of this godforsaken town. As one of the old-timers at the drugstore says, When a man's concocting a scheme, he's got his gears a-turning. Memorial reads and crosses at every swerve. So there's a speed trap up ahead there at the curve. The deputy just passed me by, but now he's a-turning around. Oh, get me out of this godforsaken town. But he says the same holds true for the oaks, pines, and sycamores of the dead men. Well, I squandered half my life away, time to go have some fun. Because the truth to head ratio is damn near three. 
Perhaps the deadening is seething angst up from underground, up through the trees like a pipe organ, or giant lumber horns driven by the steams of hell. I imagine a subterranean network of fibers forming lungs, constricting and expanding like bellows. Carver tells me. Some say it's the sound of pressure being released from a tectonic crack. Deep beneath the Tennessee River. It issues from vast chasms as pent up steam, water, sand and coal, grind, gush, and groan. Come to think of it, I vaguely heard it all my life around town, coming from the woods in the distance. There's a wonderful scene you have in this when they are looking at the trees and the trees are, they're cut and this idea that the devil left them that way. Yeah, that's the thing is uh, the way the uh, the forest got haunted in the, and by the way, this is a real tale and a, I've been to the deadening. Uh, there is a real deadening in Western Kentucky and what happened was uh, there was a, a logger, uh, like a lumberjack kind of person. He had this forest and what they do is they go out and they quote unquote ring the trees. It's to cut a swath in the bark and let them kind of bleed out their sap and die. And this makes harvesting easier later when he comes back to cut them down. But the problem was is that he himself died before coming back uh, to harvest them, leaving the, the forest dead like that. And uh, there was a, a local legend saying that if you enter the woods, you will most assuredly get lost inside, but find your way out the next morning. But then when you get back to town, you found that not just a day had passed, but an entire year. Wow. And that's the real story of the of dead, the dead in Marshall County, Kentucky. So Carver and our hero set off on a journey toward the deadening, the house of Kudzu. We pedal along under the devastation of our strange summer trail. Dead limbs and kudzu, deer stands and garbage. The air is speckled with gnat clouds, Japanese beetles, and cottonwood fluff. Ahead is a swarm of telephone bugs, the kind that mates late in the season. Let's talk a little bit about the illustrations. Okay. Um, they're beautiful, and they're pen drawings or pencil. Both. I, I have uh, some uh, Prismacolor 
black Prismacolor pencil drawings in there, and I have some uh, pen and ink, cross-hatched style. Yeah. And you told me that you you put in the drawings at the end. Right. Did I, you do this along the way with the drawings, or did you kind of put them in at the well, end? Well, here's the thing. I had uh, you know, I had submitted my book to the publishers, and you know, it takes a while, and I, I gave up hope. So I said, oh. well, I do comics and cartoons, and I thought I would turn it into a graphic novel and see if the comic book, fanographics world would like that, you know began the slow, tedious process of illustrating it like a graphic novel. And so these drawings came out of that. Then I got word back from $2 Radio. They were interested in publishing it. And I, and, you know. And then Without the pictures. Well, yeah, they didn't At know that point, uh, sure. anything about it uh, until like maybe like a couple of months into it. You know, we were just moving right along to publish it, uh, editing it and all that. And uh, I was on the phone with Eric and uh, was joking that, yeah, I was about to give up before y'all emailed me and uh, I was going to turn it into uh, graphic novels. And I've got all these illustrations and stuff. He goes, can I see them? <laughs> go, sure. Yeah, sure. And then I emailed him the pictures and he goes, oh, well, we have to put these. Yeah, in. it makes the book infinitely better. This scene is my absolute favorite in the book. I love this scene with the the hurricane, you know, the hurricane that they kind of go inside this this hurricane. It's really a a storm uh, with their bikes. Uh, So let's kind of listen to this one. Hurricanes. And then a table of contents of sorts. Wind storms from the south. Stickers snag our britches while we bounce our bicycles down the rock steps. A clearing blooms through the trees as the light of day returns. Here it is. Ah, relief from the forest. A craggy white canyon gapes wide at the sky like the jaws of a screaming planet. From atop its teeth, we survey the vast sweep of an alabaster quarry below. It is where, with a little luck and athleticism, we'll soon touch ground. A mirage ripples the horizon like the waves of an ocean, but a Panasonic rumble warns of storms. It's been looking like rain since dawn. Thunder before seven, rain before eleven. Whoa, ho, ho, take a look out there. I point with my eyes. Three white dust devils descend from the black sky like tentacles in an ink cloud. Yep, that's typical. These hurricanes come a-blowing up from Real Foot Lake every summer. If we time it out right, we could launch ourselves off the ramp and into their grip to catch some air. Let's go for it. Carver goes first, mounting up at the edge of a 200 foot ramp. 
Pausing for breath and scanning the landscape to make some last-minute calculations, Carver reels back, adjusts his crotch, and then hurls himself down the rocky way at full speed. Fists hold fast while arms absorb a jackhammering motion. A small avalanche of gravel follows behind him. Dead ahead, a twister waits in lithe undulation. Carver barrels forth like a juggernaut, pedaling down onto the ramp, up the incline, off the lip, through the wind, and into the tornado's twisting column. It's perfectly timed as the storm's arms pull him inside deep into the central eye. An extra 15-foot lift draws him heavenward. Then the spirit took me up, and I heard behind me a voice of a great rushing, saying, Blessed be the glory of the Lord from his place. I'm fixing to tell you that I swallow my tongue. Then thunder and lightning inch close to the sun. Up and down in my burrow, lucky foot still in tow. To the old moon I hollered and I'm ready to go. And I heard also the noise of the wings of the living creatures that touched one another. And the noise of wheels over against them. And the noise of a great rushing. So the spirit lifted me up. And took me away. And I went in bitterness in the heat of spirit. But the hand of the spirit was on me. Ezekiel 3, 12 through 27, King James Version. It torques them like a propeller blade for three full 360 degree rotations. Then, like a kite that's lost its zephyr, he plummets to the ground and power slides a swoosh into the gravel. Your turn, root hog or die. What was the fascination with tornadoes? Uh, it was a story my dad told me uh, from his childhood. Of, uh, was, um, they were, you know, maybe, he, uh, I don't know, uh, 11, 12 years old or, you know, whenever you're out riding bikes that age, say, uh, they were uh, riding around a construction site where they were building a house, and was, so there was a lot of dust, sawdust, and, and dirt, and piles of dirt, and uh, they were ramping off this mound of dirt, and uh, 
a dust, a giant dust devil had had formed in this in the sawdust and the dirt, and they actually launched into this dust devil, and they said they felt the thing lift them up. So I thought that would be a great scene to put in there because I, I can't imagine that you know being inside like a whirlwind on your bike and being actually lifted in the air. Just goofing around like that. The mighty rushing wind. Yeah. <laughs> the gust. That's it really happened. Yeah, it's a tough act to follow. I ponder the distance, guesstimating the moment my dust devil will pass. go down the mountainside at top speed, head down and hell for leather. My brain dedicates itself to navigating each pit, pebble, and crag, maintaining complete balance and control. My mind's eye, however, follows behind as if outside my body, looking down and out ahead of me. I hit the lip of the concrete ramp, and suddenly I'm aloft find a twister all my own. It's like a piece of fable found in a storybook. Yeah, just like a greedy dog barking for some other bone. Well, he lost the one he brung in the babbling brook. Well, never let it be said, I don't say I told you so. Lord have mercy. Harmattan winds lift me in a speckled haze of stinging sand. I am weightless and alive. Has anyone ever done this before? Peppering sand blasts my face and neck, and I'm spinning like a brat in a swivel chair. The tornado has wholly consumed me. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. Acts chapter 2. But there's another lesson written in the holy book about the prodigal son who was given a second chance. Then down I drop, down toward the quarry bottoms below. Down, down, down. Deciding to go it alone, I throw my tin speed aside, my legs running in midair, awaiting impact. The bike hits first and bounces itself into a ditch. But I stick my landing, post-holing myself into the creek mud with a wet, buckling crunch. I slowly gather my full posture, lift my head toward Carver, and punch two fists of victory into the wind. Yes! Pretty fan dancing. You must have gone up an extra... 25 friggin' feet. God 
God, that was insane. Did you get sandblasted as much as I did? Yeah, I got popped pretty good, but you were right, it was worth it. After some attaboys, we're back on the loose. The familiar friend of the old spur line welcomes us back. And just like that, I'm sitting on top of the world, sober as a judge and in love with the world. You're listening to Arts and Letters and our conversation with writer, illustrator, musician J.D. Wilkes about his book, The Vine That Ate the South. We'll be back in a moment. Let's return to our conversation with writer and musician J.D. Wilkes and his novel, The Vine That Ate the South. Around Carver's neck hangs his grandmother's old madstone. It's a handy amulet that draws the poison out of animal bites. Only five other Cherokee madstones are known to exist in Kentucky, each supposedly possessing different magical properties. My father was obsessed with finding one for himself. So tell us a little bit about the legend of the Mad Stone in this. It's supposedly there are only four or five of them. Yeah, five, I think I've figured out now uh, for the sequel. It's a real thing, uh, come to find out. I have a, a subscription to Kentucky Explorer, which is a newsprint magazine that reprints old newspaper articles and, and new articles written about Kentucky history and lore and and I read an article about madstones, which are Cherokee amulets that are made out of petrified deer cud. So basically the rumen uh, that comes up forms a petrified or rock-like stone of uh, dried cud, and it is used or used to be used in in folk magic, Native American folk magic, to uh, draw out the poison and snake bites. You can probably Google this, but a mad stone is a real thing. So I just took it a step further. Onward we push to the kudzu house. Standing on the pedals and coasting toward green oblivion. Stars are made by the spaces between the leaves overhead. Constellations, too, if you connect them with a dotted line. They plot out all the mythical heroes and beasts. A whole other cast of our own Dixie Fried characters. It's Daniel Boone instead of Orion. John Henry instead of Perseus. Pinpricks of light shimmer the way planets do through an atmospheric lens. Or gleam like the knowing, winking eye of our wise fool archetype. That southern singularity who casts pearls of country brilliance before the educated fool.
just as points of sunlight are cast down here to sift through the dust in diagonal bolide rays, eternally dense into inner space, yet ever expanding its kudzu provenance without. The vaults of the dead moon occupy an echelon neither macro nor micro, but perfectly sublime from our humble perspective. Carver bikes back to the nearest bend in Clark's River while I hide in a patch of widow's tears. I'm buzzing and paranoid, yet exhilarated. In this misery of bug bites and allergy symptoms, my mind travels to a happy place. Close-knit family get-togethers with grandma and grandpa and other wistful recollections of my country home. I can smell the nostalgic bouquet of bacon and coffee. Mama's organ music echoes like a heavenly music box, and I am safe and innocent for now. Daddy's dead. Rummaging through the fallen leaves, I disturb a sleeping pit viper. Twin pricks and the sensation of tiny jaw muscles sink into the meat of my thumb. It sends me howling with panic. I reel as the serpent recoils into a hoop and hisses. Surely Carver heard me and will come running. The serpent slithers into the blear as the hot pinpricks throb. I can feel the viper bane spread fast, and I need to think quick what to do, what to do. My arm is stiffening, and I'm walking in stupid circles, blurry circles. Yo, Carver! Didn't he tell me he had his grandmother's madstone? Didn't he say he brought it with him? Now I am back diving into a cave of stars. Everything here is made of millions and billions of dots. They dissolve away, reassemble, dissolve away, and reassemble again. Sunlight beams in from the west as showers sail in on a zephyr. Rainbows with bizarro anti-colors refract through the charging ozone. I can taste the new hues. Or is that just the copper tinge of death?
A spirograph of starlight shimmers behind my eyelids. Heavenly geometric shapes swirl like interlocking firework patterns. Shapes form into faces. A flat-bottomed boat and its hunching deckhand drudge forth. I can't take my eyes off her. I dare not take my eyes off her. She paddles her ferry ever closer. Through the crepuscular gloom I see a witch. The Bell Witch of Tennessee. Now this is a, a tale. What's happened is they've gone through a variety of adventures, right. and this is toward the end of toward the book the end, a little bit. Separated, and uh, and right off the bat, the hero, if you want to call him that, gets in trouble. He just can't help himself. Uh, right. He gets bit by a snake, and uh, you don't really know yet if it's a vision or if it's really happening. To right, him. it's a, um, a hallucination or. Maybe he, he sees the woods for what they are and what they truly house. So tell us about the Bell Witch of Tennessee. The Bell Witch of Tennessee is, is what the Blair Witch Project was based on. Uh, they just changed the name. But uh, Kate was the name of this entity. In fact, even the, the main book about the one that's most trusted about the Bell Witch always puts a question mark after the word witch throughout the book because it just... They don't know what it was. Nowadays, we would call it a poltergeist, but uh, it, uh, she, it terrorized a family in the uh, early to mid-1800s in Adam, Tennessee. It was a, um, a planter, farmer, patriarch, John Bell, who um, was tormented by this poltergeist. And it's the only person supposedly ever murdered by a poltergeist on record <laughs> and the only poltergeist ever vouched for by a sitting U.S. president. Andrew Jack. Andrew Jack, who went on record to say that he, he brought in a, a witch catcher to try to tackle the thing and the witch catcher was uh, slapped by an invisible hand and chased off. And uh, Andrew Jackson said he he'd rather face the the British all over again than to go head-to-head -head with the Bell Witch of Tennessee. Yeah, you're definitely in trouble, boy. You're definitely in trouble. Trespassing, cussing, blaspheming, hanging on things that don't belong to you. <laughs> she is pure hate, and there is nothing but pointy-eared evil in her words. But I am at her mercy. Despite the tourniquet, my arm is swollen and blackened with poison and my system is starting to shut down. The Bell Witch, Old Kate, Bay Bay, whatever the nomenclature, this Queen Mab of the Mire is devil all the same. <laughs> 
Now where's the stone? <laughs> if you ain't got the mad stone, who does? The mad stone. Mad stone? If I had that, I would have already dealt with this snake bite. And I sure as hell wouldn't be dealing with you. Kate produces a budding young sapling of the infamous kudzu kind. Her grasp loosens and down it plops into the swamp. Like the snakes of a caduceus, they wrap me head to toe and lift. I plead for mercy, but Kate and company vanish in a blue flash of foxfire. Likewise, I am in transit, intertwined with the vine that ate the south. Up, up and up, like a beanstalk in a jacktail. Away into the pine tops, I am gathered by its tentacles. Now it is I who will feel the fate of my long-sought cries. The dead lovers of the kudzu house of horrors. What I love you do with the bit of this is that you, even though the story has so many disparate moments, mm -hmm. you tie it all together. They are right here, right beside me the dead husband and wife. Literally? We are all three displayed in a gothic Golgotha of bones and kudzu, pitched high as the steepled tent of the devil's circus. Metaphysically? Taut wires and trapezes, nets and ropes, as if all tangled by a twister. Fable-like? Our bodies must forever hover together here, woven in kudzu, the three of us. Oh, and we don't know if it actually happened, but he moves up into the trees with the older people. Lashed as Mazeppa and stitched into infinite density. Boy, that was a really nicely done piece. There's there. a, yeah, there's some sort of ascension going on there. I know that's like a Freudian or a Jungian thing. It happens a lot in these kinds of um, adventure tales and and coming-of-age, rites-of-passage stories. So there might have been some sort of a, a you know, spiritual awakening uh, that's symbolized in that crucifixion, the lifting up into the trees. Last thing, what, um, what do you want for Carver and our hero? What do you hope for them? I already know what happens. Ah, uh, you do? I already know what happens. They both ascend and that's what they want to do, is to become something new, and they definitely go in the up direction. And, uh, and I think that that's, uh, writing about heroism, I think is important still, and uh, writing about ambition. Instead of slacker chic, we're inundated with anti-hero stuff. You can be funny and edgy and still inspire people to be their best, no matter who you are. This is like an analogy or a parable or... It's not like preachy at all, but it, I, I hope people, you know, get a kick out of wanting to get out there and conquer something, you know. I mean, I don't personally set up goals. You know, I don't really know what I want. I just <laughs> do what I do. And I think that I... But I do it until I've accomplished it. And they, these guys are learning how to do that in new ways in this sequel. And I'm, I'm proud of them. Thank you so very much. Thank you so much. Broadcast from the studios of KUAR in Little Rock, you've been listening to Arts and Letters. Thanks for joining us. To check out past episodes, go to artsandlettersradio.org. Leave us a comment there and let us know what you've thought about the program. Thank you to singers and songwriters, 
J.D. Wilkes, and Miranda Sierra for the in-studio sessions and for the use of your solo music. Thank you to actors Dr. George K. Simon, Johnny Payne, and Jessica Fuller for the voice work. A special thank you to Joseph Fuller for the recordings and inspiration. Thank you to Adam Simon of Simon Sound for helping to mix and for mastering the episode. Thank you to Sticky's Rock and Roll Chicken Shack for keeping music alive and well in Arkansas. Thank you to BJ and Jimmy Moses for the generous support. Generous funding for Arts and Letters was provided by the Arkansas Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you to writer J.D. Wilkes for combining Southern folklore and mythology, tall tales and ballyhoo, and painstakingly detailed renderings to produce a kudzu vine that gobbles up our imaginations. For Arts and Letters, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick. Let's heed the words of Herman Melville. It's not down on any map. True places never are. Arts and Letters is a production of Living the Dream Media.